Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're going to digress now to one of our monthly joys, which is Foreign Affairs Magazine. I don't know how Gideon Rose does it, John. He gets out front of the zeitgeist with Trump's Middle East this month. It is a spectacular essay. And John, what is so trenchant here is a few years back, Mr. Rose wrote an essay, Why We Always Fight the Last Battle. A series of essays. And there's the news essay. There's the news flow of the last few days, including Mr. Putin and Mr. Erdogan shaking hands, not over an Olympic medal in Sochi. So Gideon, let's talk about it. If there's one takeaway from this edition, what would that be? Uh, well, that the Middle East is going back into its historical mode of a local region in which the local power, powers play a great game of jockeying among each other with occasional outsiders coming in to back them. With the U.S. essentially signaling, first with Obama and then with Trump, that it was going to pull out, what we're actually seeing is the local powers adjusting to a Middle East without the United States playing a major role. And so in America, this is couched as, oh, the Russians are coming in, or we've abandoned the Kurds, and all that's true. But from the local powers, the larger picture is, okay, the Americans aren't really going to be here or be able to be counted on to protect us, so we have to make our own deals with the locals in the region. And so when the Iranians send a signal to the Saudis and the Americans, by uh, arranging the drone bombing of the Saudi oil fields as a signal, you keep messing with us and we, will, can, we can hurt you, then the Americans don't do anything. What if the Saudis realize from that, we cannot afford to anger Iran because they can come and blow us up next time even worse. So the Saudis mute their response and start making an accommodation with Iran. Same thing with the Israelis, who are now making deals with the Russians to protect their interests in Syria because the United States is no longer able to protect the Israelis from the problems in Syria. So essentially what you're seeing is the emergence of a post-American Middle East uh, even quicker than we thought would happen. Well, let's talk about that. The, the broader strategy in the region hinged on two big alliances, one with the Israelis, another with the Saudis. Do the Saudis look a little lonely well, right now, the, Yes, exactly. How look, vulnerable the, are they? So the, the fact is that the, uh, the Trump administration wanted to have its cake and eat it too. It wanted to continue to walk away from the region and not get Americans trapped in endless wars, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and at the same time, it wanted to confront Iran and avoid the consequences of just simply walking away. So it tried to essentially contract out U.S. diplomacy in the region and U.S. strategy in the region to its two powerful proxies, Israel and Saudi Arabia, and said, well, you guys can confront Iran, Israel in the Levant and Saudi in the Gulf, and we'll back you and we'll give you whatever you want to contract out that job. The problem is that the locals were very clever, took the American uh, uh, offer and got whatever they wanted with their local conflicts, but they actually can't counter Iran because the Saudis are essentially a rich gas station without a strong military. They're prey, not a, a, a counterweight. And the, and the Israelis are off on the side of the region because, no, the Arab powers won't ally with them formally because of the Palestinian issue. And so essentially what has happened now is the Israelis and the Saudis played the Americans, got what they wanted over the last couple of years, 
and now see the Americans walking away, leaving them with gains they've had. MBS is strong and in power and has uh, established authoritarian control. Netanyahu has gotten a whole bunch of things that he wanted. And yet now the question is, will the U.S. be there in the long run to protect against the Iranians? And I think the answer is now that the Iranians and sorry, the Saudis and the Israelis are starting to think, okay, we need to make deals with the Russians, with the Iranians, because we can't count on the Americans. If the United States is pulling back, why is this administration sending troops to Saudi Arabia? Because it can't pull back completely from the region. And what Trump would like to do is unwind American commitments, but at the heart of those commitments, the external ones seem disposable. It doesn't really bother many Americans except for the dishonor about what we're doing to the Kurds. But the point is the Kurds are the front line of defense. If you keep going northern Syria, if you keep going further and further away, eventually you get to Saudi Arabia. And that's the world's gas station. You have to protect it for the stability of the global economy. And so the problem is not the first places you withdraw from. It's when you start taking out those things, when you play the game of Jenga, when you're left at the bottom, if you have no other pieces there, you're screwed. Very quickly, Michael Duran in your wonderful magazine, Why Seeding Land Will Not Bring Peace. Are we building a 20-mile-wide new Gaza Strip between Syria and Turkey? So the most interesting part, uh, actually, no, because we're essentially allowing the locals to deal with it. And the difference there is the outside powers aren't going to play. It'll be the local powers, uh, Russia, Syria, Turkey. Um, The interesting thing about the Palestinian issue is that has been kept alive for several decades because of the external involvement of other powers and the international system. Including Turkey. Including Turkey. And there are refugee camps. The the fact is that the most interesting thing we've learned from this issue, at least for me, is that nobody cares about the Palestinians anymore because the Trump policy has essentially given Israel everything it wanted and nobody has objected to it. We got to leave it there. It is a triumph. Gideon Rose and his team at Foreign Affairs Magazine, Trump's Middle East. We've been following Brexit since the Suez Canal crisis. And um, I I must say, John, to cut to the chase. That was actually a good one. This is my favorite. That was a good one. I watched The Crown. Come on, Anthony. That's a good joke. I know. That's a good joke. You know, there's that scene in Lawrence of Arabia where he's out starving in the desert, drying, and boom, he comes over, and there's a screen door, and then boom, there's the Suez Canal. And the the music. I'm shutting my eyes just thinking of you as a narrator. This is really good. I was 12 years old. It was something. Uh, This is my favorite Brexit guest. My absolute favorite. Favorite Brexit guest from Cambridge University. I'm a big fan. Why don't you launch it? Catherine Barnard, the UK in a changing Europe senior fellow. Catherine, great to have you with us on the program. Talk to me about what happened in the House of Commons in the last 24 hours and what's happening right now. Well, it's remarkable. Um, I mean, this is uh, Boris Johnson became Prime Minister in the summer. He said he was going to get Brexit done. Uh, The only way he could get Brexit done was to revise the deal that Theresa May had entered into. Um, He successfully did that last week. In fact, it's primarily Theresa May's deal, but with knobs on. And the knobs relate to Northern Ireland um, because they have, um, he's changed the position on Northern Ireland. It's no longer a backstop, um, a sort of default position, insurance position. What he's done is create a special situation for Northern Ireland. And he said, right, we need to um, put that to a vote. And, it, and then that vote failed. Um, the, uh, but um, what did 
he was forced to do as a result is um, write to the EU and say we want an extension. He did that very grudgingly as he was obliged to do it under what's called the Ben Act. As you remember, he sent three letters on Saturday night to say, um, I'm forced to ask for an extension. I don't really want it, but I'm asking for one anyway. And then this week he tabled the WAB. Now, the WAB's another bit of jargon. The WAB is the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill. Um, and we got it on late Monday night. It's 110 pages long. It's fiendishly complicated, uh, really difficult legal text. And um, he said, right, MPs, uh, you've got three days to negotiate, uh, to, to rule on this. You can discuss it for three days, and that is it. MPs were very cross. And so there was what's called something really very dull, but a, a motion on how to actually manage this process, and he lost that too. But what he did win, and he doesn't have a great record of winning votes, he did win what was called the second reading vote, which basically said, grudgingly, yeah. mm, we like this deal. That's the good news. So now we have this situation <laughs> on whether they can agree on the time to discuss the overall bill. And Catherine, I wonder if they can do that. There was a suggestion before these votes yesterday that perhaps the Prime Minister just withdraws the whole thing and calls an election. That hasn't happened. What do you think the next steps are? Well, that's the question. So th- th- at the moment, if you think about this in terms of a game of ping pong, the ball is currently in the EU's court because the EU have got to decide whether they'll grant the extension that Boris Johnson so grudgingly and ungraciously asked for on Saturday night. All of the omens look reasonably good that they will do. Remember, they've got to act unanimously. President Macron, the, um, uh, the French president, is being really quite cross about this and saying not very keen on granting the extension because the Brits can't get their house in order, as you've helpfully pointed out. This has been going on since the time of Suez. Um, And the French have had enough, but I think it's likely they will grant the extension till the 31st of January. Then the big question is, will we have an election? Um, What effect might the uh, fact that we haven't left had on the Tory prospects in the election? Uh, Catherine Barnard with us, a British legal scholar, which barely describes her accomplishments. She is a fellow of Trinity College at Cambridge. Professor Barnard, I am looking at the complexities of the Parliamentary Voting System and Constituencies Act of 2011. Is all of this insanity coming out of this revolutionary change in Parliament eight years ago? Well, you're right, um, but there's another act um, that has really changed the dynamics, and that's the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. And that act says, in order to call an election out of sequence, we know we have elections every five years, you need to have two-thirds majority in Parliament. And we're in a very unusual situation, because usually the opposition are jumping up and down saying, oh, yes, we absolutely want an election because we want to replace you lot in government. But this time, Labour's saying, actually, we're not very keen. One, because it's good to keep Boris Johnson dangling on the string. And secondly, because Labour's not actually convinced they would win the election if there was one. So, Catherine, let's talk about where we have actually made some progress in the last six weeks. The Prime Minister has gone from saying that he would rather be dead in a ditch than remain in the EU beyond October 31st, with or without a deal. And now he is saying that we will leave the EU with this deal. I think that's the big takeaway for a lot of people, not just for markets, but just more broadly, that the chances of a hard Brexit, so to speak, may not have completely been resolved, but they have receded, and quite markedly, Catherine. Would you agree with that? 
I agree they've receded on the 31st of October. It's not clear whether they've receded on the 31st of January, assuming that's the date for the extension. It's also not clear, even if we can overcome those hurdles and the WAB, remember that's the domestic piece of legislation giving effect to Boris Johnson and Theresa May's deal, that even if the WAB goes through, what we do is we go into what's called a period of transition, which is essentially status quo, but there is a big trapdoor at the end of that transition. And if there's no future deal concluded, that's on what the future relationship might look like, we end up with no deal at that moment. And that's what some of the Remainer or the no-no-deal politicians are really worried about. At this moment, do the other parties, besides a diminished Labour and the Conservatives, do all the other parties, do they have quote-unquote power? Do they have a say in the process forward? Well, they do, because until um, a single party gets majority in Parliament, they hold the balance of power. And the party you need to watch particularly is the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party. Really? Why? Because uh, they only have 10 seats, but remember, they were in what's called a confidence and supply agreement with the um, Conservatives, and that gave the Conservatives their majority um, before the 21 um, were thrown out of the Conservative Party. Yeah. But what's interesting is that the DUP very cross with Boris Johnson at the moment. They don't like his New Deal. And um, yesterday, um, on the motion, they voted against, um, to right. a man, um, the Conservative position. Catherine Barnard, thank you so much. From Thanks, Cambridge Catherine. University as well. She has prodigious math chops with uh, BlackRock. Whaley with us right now. And John, a lot of this is the dynamics in the known unknowns within the fixed income market. Can we agree, John, before we go to uh, Lee, that there's a new belief in a lower rate regime? Over the last 90 days? Over the last year, I think that's yeah. been cemented um, in a lot of people's minds. The other story we've got to talk about is just the amount of flows into Europe, of all places. Waylee joining us now, BlackRock head of iShares, EMEA Investment Strategy. EMEA? E-M-E-A. You know EMEA? EMEA. Yeah. They're know. like ABBA, but they didn't have the hit N- N- Yeah, okay. EMEA. These are conversations we can do in a commercial break. Okay, thank you. Okay. Waylee. That just don't go there. Let's talk about Europe and the inflow, shall we? Your thoughts on what we have seen through September into October and why? Um, yeah, I wish I could join your other conversation during the commercial break. You don't. But yes, we're starting to see... <laughs> or maybe not. Um, yes, we're starting to see inflows into European equities. And this is really um, notable and important because on a year-to-day basis, we're still uh, having close to $100 billion out of European equities. And the flows are only starting to tentatively come back in. Part of that has to do with the fact that some of the uh, non-risks to markets incrementally improving. So if you think about the US-China trade, de-escalation, if you think about Brexit incremental improvement, that has boosted sentiment. But we're talking about really coming from very, very low base because most of the investors that we speak to under on Europe, under on European equities specifically. Record outflows followed by record inflows. Waley, what does that say about how fragile sentiment is at the moment? Well, it's very jumpy, right? So if we have this interview yesterday, uh, this time, we'll be totally talking about a 
very very different mood music compared to what we are speaking to today. So even this like a matter of 24 hours can change sentiments uh, completely, which is why we think that it is so important to build portfolio resilience, no matter how good you feel, no matter how good market feel, uh, especially given how yeah. much Treasury and European government bonds have pulled back in recent weeks, they actually offer interesting entry point to build that portfolio resilience, which you're going to need mm-hmm. for a long time. We should point out EMEA, folks, is a wonderful abbreviation, actually really works for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa that's used across all of global uh, Wall Street and Whaley, of course, out of iShares. I'm EMEA pleased, you, I'm pleased you've clarified strategy. that. Well, we're jogging free here. Are you the only one that didn't know? I didn't know. It's it's amazing how Wikipedia can save me. Waylee, when I look at this, and I want to go back again to this important five pages of the IMF, everybody's a yield hog right now, and other nations are loading up on U.S. high yield and even moderate yield paper. Is that a source of concern for you? Do you see just this addiction to I've got to own U.S. paper? Um, yes, we have seen a lot of demand for optically higher yielding uh, U.S. fixed income markets, and that applies to high yield, but it applies to government bonds as well. Speaking to EMEA, uh, investors here based in Europe, the uh, level of income that one can get is significantly lower than than, than, than what one can get in the U.S. Uh, but the, the, the important uh, 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 concern, consideration here is also hedging costs, right? When it comes to fixed income, especially when it comes to investing in developed market fixed income uh, exposures, uh, clients oftentimes have to hatch back into their base currency. So the optical yield pickup then that, that one gets uh, actually get eroded quite a lot when you convert U.S. exposure back to your uh, euro-based uh, uh, currency, which is uh, uh, why that the demand is there, but not crazily so. Now, um, back to U.S. high-yield markets. Uh, uh, we have seen actually inflows into uh, U.S. Uh, high-yield markets, and, and whilst uh, too much froth should be a source of concern, but if you look at the, the default uh, profile, it's, it's not spiking uh, even at this point in the in the in the late cycle and given the very benign funding environment, uh, we definitely pay a lot of attention to it, but currently not a, a significant source of stress. What's the foreign bid like in European fixed income right now? What What's the foreign bid? What's the foreign bid, the foreign demand in European fixed income? How strong uh, is it yes, now? Yes, absolutely. Um, some of the uh, clients that uh, we speak to in APEC, for example, Japanese investors uh, have been uh, a consistent source of uh, uh, beat, uh, 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 um, a buyer of uh, uh, sovereign semi-core uh, European government bonds. Even when you convert it back into Japanese yen, it looks, uh, mm-hmm. it looks, uh, it, it still looks attractive. And um, uh, frankly, domestic investors are also uh, buying fixed income. If you think about first of November, uh, uh, QE start. Uh, again, um, that uh, should uh, su- sustain the, the demand right. for uh, government bonds, but also corporate bond high grade. Waylene, thank you so much. She is with BlackRock. We greatly appreciate her time this thank morning. Thank you, Waylene. We always inform here uh, at uh, Bloomberg Surveillance as we look at EMA, we would also note ABBA is the first names, the letter acronymy kind of thing of Agnetha, Bjorn, Benny, and Annie Fried. Why? ABBA. Why? I just Why? we want to inform. We got an email. All right, in. I'm not going to lie. I actually we didn't got, know that about. I, her, but. Actually, I didn't <laughs> know that either. <laughs> Hold up. 
Okay, here's what we're going to do. By popular claim, we are thrilled to bring you Mr. Galloway. Scott Galloway had my book of the year a couple years ago on the floor. I still recommend it. Throw it at the nearest smart child you have and say, shut up and read this on all this technology and the way he writes and abruptly hits you over the head on Amazon. And he has, needless to say, been out front. What are we calling it? The We Disaster? The we, we can call company, it the We Disaster. The We Work? Whatever. Can we give him a massive shout out before we, we bring him in? Because Scott won't say this about himself. Scott has been so, so critical of this company. And I've seen the amount of abuse he's taken from yeah. the Silicon Valley guys who have tried to push back aggressively yes. over the last two the months. The Unicorn Crew. Scott was right. The Union Crew were dead. The Union, the Unicorn You're Crew it. were dead <laughs> wrong. I want to bring in Scott now. Scott Galloway, NYU Stern Professor. Good morning to you, Scott. Uh, good morning, and thanks for the kind words. How do you think this ends? Uh, my guess is, uh, I think this is more um, a cautionary tale than historic. I think the company will either be a nice little co-working space that's worth 3 to $5 billion, or we have some sort of restructuring in a year to 18 months. It's still a company with $43 billion in long-term obligations over 15 years, and it's difficult to see how this company survives and cuts costs cuts costs as fast as they need to. So either a much smaller company or a bankruptcy in 2020. Scott, in the blame game, a lot of people are just looking at Adam Newman. How much attention should we be paying to the likes of SoftBank and the Vision Fund? Well, I, you know, Adam Newman makes for a more interesting story, but the reality is if you tell a 30-year-old male that he's Jesus Christ, he's inclined to believe you. The fiduciary... Wait, 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 wait. We do, we do that with Pharaoh every day. <laughs> every day. Ignore him, Scott. Carry on, please. Uh, yeah, look, the, the, the fiduciaries here, we're not acting as fiduciaries. And at some point, the limited partners are going to ask uh, Masayoshi-san, you know, how can you give somebody uh, $1.7 billion, which is more than eBay paid for PayPal to get out of the way such that you could pay severance to employees. This is you know, the, the, the big learning here will be the dual class shareholder structures yeah. combined with the idolatry of innovators needs more scrutiny. That uh, Power corrupts and they put too much power in the hands of one individual. And that uh, was out of him. Tim Culpin and Shuli Rand have a brilliant essay. Washington Post picked it up as well off Bloomberg Opinion. And, and, and it goes to Galloway 101, which is WeWork will be an associate of SoftBank. The accounting's really suspect. And the announcements of the last number of hours, including a $185 million consultant fee, could that happen to an American corporation if SoftBank was American, given their general counsel, given their outside counsel, and given any kind of accountancy and regulation? You know, I don't, I don't know. The accounting, th this is definitely going to be one for the history books, and we'll be teaching about this in accounting classes for a long time because they figured out a way to give 100% commissions to fill up their office and then figured out a way to turn those commissions from expenses into revenues. So the accounting here has just gotten crazy. The, the cultural divider, the most interesting thing here in terms of it, contrast and cultures is I do believe this will go down as the most expensive or costly um, exercise in saving face in the history of the private markets, because there really isn't a, a bull case or an economic case for putting seven or eight billion dollars in good capital after bad here. And the reason that SoftBank did it is this isn't as in, an investment as much in WeWork as it is an investment in trying to save face or repair or buttress the reputation of SoftBank and Vision One Fund. This economically makes no sense. Scott, we were weeks away from retail getting absolutely hosed 
and getting caught picking up all of this mess for themselves in an IPO. There's some people asking as to whether there is more than one WeWork. Scott, you called out WeWork quite correctly, given the events of the last month. As you look around yourself right now, do you see any more, any more big issues brewing elsewhere? Well, the place to look, quite frankly, is, is the same judgment, the same algorithms for decision-making around uh, WeWork, and that is a disaster that went from $48 billion to eight generously in about 45 days, and that is to look at SoftBank's other investments. I think if you were to try and sniff out other real estate, uh, SoftBank-backed real estate companies, you would find Oyo, the Indian-based company that is trying to roll up uh, budget hotels that has a 25-year-old founder who has borrowed money against his own stock to be part of a $1.5 billion round that no one else but the founder and, of course, SoftBank would invest in. I think the iBuying space, uh, specifically Open Door, that is using algorithms to buy real estate in what is typically a very nuanced local market, yeah. deserves more scrutiny. And then there's the crazy $300 million into a company called WAG, so you can yeah. have an app to get someone yeah. to walk your dog. There's definitely more yeah. to come. Scott Galloway, 20 seconds. Airbnb. How unicorny is Airbnb this morning? I actually think Airbnb is one of the winners, Tom. Okay. Margins are strong here. Positive positive margins, very strong moats, both global global demand yeah. and global supply. I, I do not think Airbnb is no WeWork. This is wonderful. Scott Galloway, thanks, thank you Scott. so thank much. You. Congratulations on uh, driving forward the global Wall Street conversation. important and usually comes in with a stack of world-class research. Michael Nathanson uh, with us writing with Moffat Nathanson is just first class. Paul Sweeney's lined up with all sorts of intelligent questions. Michael Nathanson, you are such a stud. Mrs. Keene said, can you just start the interview today with one question? She wants to know, is Kendall Roy for real in succession? <laughs> Do you watch this? That's oh, the best show ever. It really is. Is it <laughs> accurate? Is, is Kendall that big of a tool? Um, I think it's, you know, I think it's a bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, someone said to me, Michael Jordan was a great basketball player. doesn't mean his son's a great basketball player, right? So Really? Yeah. So this whole idea of, like, legacy and succession, in media, unfortunately, that's part of the industry, right? It's passed on down. Yeah. There's no guarantee that you're as good as you So when man. you as a, you're the, the mother of all content right. kings, grizzled pros, when you watch Succession... It rings true. <laughs> it rings true. The whole pivot of old media, new media, you have to consolidate quickly. It's like this past season was really reality. In what way? Quickly here. Well, because, you know, the walls are closing in. Media needs to consolidate, right? And do you want to buy new old TV stations? Do you want to get at it? Like, how do you fix your empire to get ready have, for, for the onslaught? Have you been on a yacht that big? <laughs> oh, I yet. think he has several times. <laughs> so, Michael, you know, the big Mr. thing, you've been, covering, you've been covering the media sector for such a long yes. time. And, you know, it's really at a pivotal time for the media companies as they try to pivot towards technology and streaming. Yep. And probably no greater example is Walt Disney Company, what they're trying to do. Give us your sense of how you think media will make that transition. Yeah, it's going to be really, really lumpy. So it starts with the question Tom always asks us, which is, what does cord cutting look like? What's the future for the bundle? So right now, let's call it about 80, 85 million people who pay for a monthly video subscription. We think that falls to 60 million subs, okay? Oh. 
The 60 million subscribers who are there, they care about the Toronto Maple Leafs, they care about Premier League soccer, they care about the NHL, the NFL, Bloomberg News. They'll be there for sports and news, right? So that means you'll lose a ton of subscribers that you have now. If you have assets that play in the live sports and news business, you'll be fine. So Disney has ESPN, Fox, which we like, has Fox News, Fox Sports. The long tail of entertainment networks, anything you're gonna watch that's entertainment based will be on demand, right? So then the world's gonna shrink for cable networks. At the same time, there's gonna be this war we're watching now to play in the on-demand space, right? So Netflix was the first mover, then Hulu, then Amazon, now Disney, Apple, right? CBS All Access, it's just more and more pressure to fight for that SVOD opportunity, right? Does, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one of the things Tom and I you know, always talk about, because Tom is afraid he's, he's spending, he pays so many bills every month and he's got so many string bills. He doesn't know what's going on in his bank account. It's all direct, you know, payment. He doesn't know what's going on. So how many payments will people make for streaming services? Do you think? We think on average there'll be four to five streaming services, right? There'll be four to five products, maybe three to four. But what's going to happen is in homes that have given up the bundle, they'll have surplus, surplus spending, right? Because basically they've traded down from a hundred dollar bundle to maybe four or five products that will cost 45, 50 bucks, right? So you're gonna have extra opportunities to spend from households that have spun down, spun out, right? At the same time, what's gonna happen is Tom's not gonna go to the movies as much. He's definitely not buying home videos anymore. He's not gonna buy, a, you know, he's gonna stream his music. So there's beginning to see an erosion in consumer spending in categories where technology is disrupted. So he'll find excess, you know, savings from things that he no, no longer does. So the long history of media is, I would have said to you five, 10 years ago, you would have said, how much more can the bundle pricing go up? And we would have said, it goes up 5% every year because you can't find succession away from the bundle, yeah. right? So I, IP is very, very, you know, it's, it's got pricing power. It's, it's to great. me, the entire hinge here is the belief by well-meaning executives that younger people who don't use this stuff will shift and use it when they get older. Right. How certain is that foundational gospel? That's no longer a foundational gospel. That's not certainty. I think a twenty-three-year-old will or will not shift at forty-three years old. They will not become us when they become our age. They just will <laughs> not. Right? You go to anyone who's a college kid. Look at their <clears throat> dorm structure versus ten years ago dorms. There's no TV sets anywhere. Right? It's all it's all laptop. It's iPad. They're just going to basically hang a connected TV set on the wall not pay for cable or satellite and use apps use apps to watch what they want maybe they'll use their parents apps right they'll just basically share passwords and put it no. on yes <laughs> really yeah like the whole point tom is like we we're going to see basically a, a race to the bottom like your point of there has been life cycles and people usually follow their previous you know generations behavior that's broken down that's not going to happen is there here. profit for anyone on the race to the bottom I think, no, you know, the next three or four or five years, that is my big worry that we don't have a profit here. You know, Netflix has never actually created free cash flow. You know that. There's never been free <laughs> cash generation. How strange. But the bond there's, market is there for Netflix. Exactly. And Why is the bond market there for Netflix if they've never developed free cash flow? It's on the edge of we company. Right, because there's the belief embedded in the equity that cash flow positives around the corner. Okay, like Comcast flipped a switch and they did that. The Roberts family executed that on the edge of brilliant. Right. Do you have the same confidence that content creators can do a Comcast? It, there will have to be slowing top line growth and slowing 
content spending, right? It's you got the decision's going to have to be is when the top line starts to slow, you have to basically hit the brakes on content spending. But we don't see that anywhere at the moment. No. We see it just continuing to go up like crazy. And, uh, you know, it's going to get even worse now with Disney coming to Marketplace and all these other streaming services. Yeah. So just to, before I know, uh, so Disney, just to let you know what, what we have in our model, we think Disney is going to lose in this current year $4.6 billion in fiscal year 20 on streaming. Wow. And that's part of their guidance, $4.6 billion. Yes, I just figured it out. <laughs> You're dressed like Connor Roy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is. I mean, he's yeah. got the casual thing going. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, since they left Sanford Bernstein, they just... Yeah, we, we've... The whole, the whole mode has yeah. changed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he and Craig used to be buttoned down, sharp. You could be presentable. You know, yeah, you I know. know. And now it's, it's like succession. I mean. yeah. Michael yeah. Matheson, Senior Analyst, Moffat Matheson, joining us here in studio. We appreciate uh, him coming in and giving us uh, his time. Lots to talk about in this media space. Uh, lots of convergence, lots of consolidation, mm, lots of big companies. Opening. Getting even bigger, lots of bills that Tom is paying for various kids around the world. He is not even sure what he's paying for, but uh, he's writing the checks nonetheless. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.